Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Mitch Goodman from Caltech on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from MIT in 2012. You then moved on to do a postdoc at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. You then moved out west and started your own lab at Caltech in 2013 and became professor of biology there in 2019. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Um, yeah, great question. So... I guess my first uh, interest in biology start, started when I was uh, in elementary school. Uh, and uh, in particular, I remember very vividly when uh, Dolly, the first sheep, was cloned and sort of the international news story that uh, was associated with that event. I was at the time, I want to, I believe in sixth, sixth grade or so. And uh, it was the first time that I really understood the sort of power opportunities the the transformative potential of biology and it was really fascinating for me to sort of follow and learn a lot about sort of, uh, what it took to be able to get to the point of cloning uh, an entire uh, organism and uh and so that was sort of the first um interesting interest i i took in biology and then through the course of uh, high school, uh, when the, for example, the Human Genome Project was completed, uh, that also, you know, that fixated me uh, in terms of, uh, once again, the transformative potential of biology. And it was pretty much at that point that I thought about, this is what I wanted to do. Uh, what exactly I wanted to do, how exactly I would do it, what it would entail, was not at all obvious to me. And in hindsight, uh, I had no idea, um, but I think the fact that uh, this is this is what I wanted to pursue, I think, became clear at that point. So let's talk about what you ended up doing, <laughs> meaning your science, that centers around decoding the roles of non-coding RNAs and shaping nuclear structure and gene expression, um, roughly. <laughs> I want to start with a paper that was published in 2013 in Science. Uh, there you investigated the function of the long non-coding RNA exist in 3D genome architecture. Um, can you talk how you got into that and what you finally did? Absolutely. So uh, I'll answer that by actually taking a step back and, and starting off with my time as a graduate student. And I got interested in long non-coding RNAs as a graduate student, uh, but actually sort of by accident. Um, and I'm happy to talk, talk about that story another, in, a, in, a, in a bit. But uh, throughout my graduate uh, studies, I was very interested in understanding sort of how many non-coding RNAs there were, what functional roles they can play, what mechanisms they can use. Uh, but uh, really to tackle that, uh, when I started my lab, we needed to take, uh, we, we needed to really drill down into a specific uh, example, a specific link RNA, and really understand how it can work. And uh, and to do that, we we started with EXIST. And the reason we started with EXIST is because Exist uh, is a link RNA that is 
responsible for orchestrating a very complex developmental program called X chromosome inactivation, the process of silencing one of the two X chromosomes during early female development. And we know that this RNA, we've known for uh, since 1991, with the first discovery of EXIST, that um, uh, this was an unusual gene and that it was it was likely essential, uh, we now know essential for this process. Uh, but even in you know, 2013, 2014, 2015, Right, almost what is that? Twenty-five years later, we still didn't really understand the details of how this RNA could achieve this pretty remarkable uh, feat, and so that's what we really uh, set out to tackle and to try to understand. And what was remarkable about that study is, you know, we we really started out with it was really exploratory, which was if we could just understand where this RNA binds, we could start to understand what's what specificity factors, for example, on the X chromosome might recruit it? Where might might it bind? And in many ways, we expected that this RNA would would look would would localize like a transcription factor or other chromatin proteins right to very specific locations. Uh, for example, at promoters of genes on the X chromosome, that there was going to be some affinity sequence on the X that was going to be responsible for defining why it localizes on the X and not, for example, autosomal regions. And to our surprise, those expectations were completely wrong. And in fact, at first, we were kind of bummed because we were like, this is everywhere. What, what does it mean? And, and it, it really was uh, through lots of exploration of, of the dynamics, the temporal dynamics of this process and some creative uh I would say thinking <laughs> on the part of um, uh, graduates at the time, Jesse Eingreitz, who's now at Stanford, uh, who really thought about it in a different way and, and was like, what if we think about this not as sort of a linear sequence, but as a 3D sequence, a 3D structure in the context of the nucleus? And, and, and today in the year 2024, that's maybe obvious. Right? Because, of course, we now all appreciate how important the 3D structure of the nucleus is. At the time, um, this was not obvious, and certainly not obvious to me. Um, but it but it very quickly um, uh, became clear that this was the essential component to how this RNA uh, worked and how this RNA localized. And, and that was not just remarkable for what it told us about EXIST, but it was remarkable in the, in the way that it changed the way that I and I think many others in the field think about uh, non-coding RNAs generally and the unique roles that they can play relative to, for example, proteins, chromatin proteins, transcription factors, other nuclear regulators, um, uh, because of their unique ability to uh, exploit and utilize and even shape the three-dimensional structure of a nucleus. Proteins is the right keyword here <laughs> because you then moved on. And I think this is also kind of a theme in your career that you developed a method to purify long, a long coding, long non-coding RNA from cells and identify proteins that interact with, um, with those long non-coding RNAs directly using a quantitative mass spectrometry. Um, so how did you get into that? And what did that enable you to find? Yeah. Um, so the reason that we sort of set out to characterize the proteins that bind to link RNAs in this in this case also uh, in the context of exist um, 
as well as others uh, subsequently, was because what was very clear to us is that uh, much of the functional roles that these RNAs are that that long non-coding RNAs play would be through their interactions and even assembly uh, or scaffolding of sort of large uh, RNA protein complexes. And so, to really understand how the an, R, an RNA can work, we really needed to know what does the complex look like. What is the the assembly, the RNP, the the ribonucleoprotein complex, and and that wasn't uh, obvious. And the reason it wasn't obvious is because um, it turns out it's very hard to guess what those proteins that might be important are. And um, and I see that because you know once again using exist as a good example, right? We had known about exist for about twenty five years at that point. We knew it was essential. We knew a, we we knew a lot about the process of X inactivation and the chromatin marks associated with it. For example, we know we knew that PRC two is enriched on the inactive X chromosome. That its localization is depend you know uh, uh, associates with uh, initiation of 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 X inactivation. Uh, that it was in, that the chromosome is enriched for K twenty seven trimethylation, depleted for K four trimethylation, and other active marks, et cetera. Um, but despite the fact that we knew so much about this process, attempts that had been made over those twenty years or so to, if you will, guess, um, you, you leverage that information to inform hypotheses about what proteins might be involved, turned out to not be very fruitful, right? And um, to that to Basically, and to date at the time, uh, there were no proteins that had been shown to be essential for uh, initiation of uh, silencing on the X chromosome, despite sort of all of that information. And so what we, what we, what we thought was, if we're going to make a dent in this question and really understand the mechanism of how this works, we need to sort of take an ab initio approach, which is let's not assume what might be involved and instead directly look at uh, what proteins it interacts with. And it turns out that that was technically challenging. We could talk about the reasons why it was technically challenging, but but also more importantly, turned out to be very informative. And the reason it turned out to be very informative is because what we, and I should say in parallel, Howard Chang's lab uh, did, uh, took, did a similar study um, with a similar method they developed uh, and identified the same uh, factors, uh, which was in and of itself very nice, but what was, and, and, and comforting, <laughs> um, but what was, uh, what, why, why it turned out to be so informative is because it turns out that the critical chromatin regulators and RNA, RNA binding proteins that recruit chromatin regulators to the X chromosome is one that most people have never heard of before. Um, and it was, uh, in fact, not very well studied at all. Uh, and so, you know, when when we and Howard um, identified this uh, and others subsequently using genetic, also using genetic studies, you know, there, it, there wasn't a large literature on what this does. There wasn't a large literature on, there wasn't, there weren't many available antibodies for actually purifying it um, because, it wasn't something that you would have guessed, uh, right? It wasn't stud well enough studied to be able to, to even be on our short list or even long list of possible uh, uh, regulators. <laughs> Just to be complete, can you name it? 
Oh, of course. Yeah, sorry. So, so the protein is a protein called uh, SHARP, also called SPEN. Um, SHARP stands for the SMART and HDAC-associated repressor protein. And it is, um, it's a 450 kilodalton protein. So it's a pretty massive protein. Uh, and it contains uh, four RRM domains, RNA recognition motifs that bind to RNA, and uh, a, a domain called the Spock domain, which binds to the nuclear receptor co-repressor NCOR2, also known as SMART, and the histone deacetylase complex HDAC3. And, and it's that complex that's essential for uh, binding to exist and initiating silencing across the entire inactive X chromosome. And you mentioned uh, the technical difficulties. Can you maybe quickly mention those? Sure. Yeah. So the, the primary uh, challenges with any sort of protein detection is the fact that you're limited by material amounts. So for those of us who are used to thinking about genomic analyses or transcriptome analyses, we have the benefit of being able to amplify low abundance material or PCR, you know, reverse transcription PCR. Uh, for proteins, we don't have that luxury, right? We can't amplify uh, material amounts. And so the sensitivity and the ability to detect what proteins are in a, in a sample are very much dependent on our ability to purify enough of it to be able to sensitively detect it by mass spectrometry. Of course, mass spectrometry methods have gotten better over the years and certainly more sensitive, and the range has, um, of sensitivity has gone gone, gone, uh, gone up uh, quite a bit. But uh, even with those improvements, uh, it still uh, uh, can be quite challenging for low uh, for, for, for lower abundance uh, complexes. And, it, and, and, and this is true, especially when you're looking at an RNA protein complex, because um, what we're looking for are proteins that specifically are associating with, with an RNA. And, and even for an RNA that's, let's, let's say, well, you know, highly abundant uh, relative to other link RNAs like exist, it's still very lowly expressed, right? So, you know, this is orders of magnitude less abundant than, for example, a ribosomal RNA or a snRNA. Um, and so you have uh, very limited amounts of material, uh, even if you were to get very high efficiency purification. And then to confound that, uh, to be able to achieve the stringency and specificity that was important for being able to confidently identify uh, proteins that are important for this uh, process, we needed to be able to utilize very specific cross-linking methods. In this case, we used uh, UV light, which uh, which which only uh, which creates a covalent photo crosslink between a protein and nucleic acid when they're directly contacting each other, and while it's very you know very very specific, it's also very inefficient, and so uh, often the efficiency of crosslinking is on the order of you know, one to five percent of interacting uh, RNA and proteins will actually form a covalent uh, photo crosslink. And so, of course, that also reduces the overall amounts that that mm. that, um, that we can get. And so, really optimizing those those components, being able to uh, purify with high high enough efficiency, uh, right, getting enough material, uh, starting with large enough amounts of material in cells to be able to to get sufficient quantities that we can actually detect by mass spectrometry, um, what you know is is a challenge and. Uh, um, yeah. yeah. 
Soxist is part of heterochromatin, obviously. <laughs> um, and, uh, you, and hydrochromatin is mostly localized at the nuclear lamina or at the nucleoli. And um, the inactive X is then oftentimes found at the nuclear lamina and the RNA cyst is involved in this process of moving it to the periphery. So how does this process work? Right, yeah. So um, so just to, to sort of reiterate, um, when you initiate silencing on the X chromosome, you go from this sort of active open state to this compacted uh, chromatin state that's silenced and has many different features of repressed heterochromatin, including many different of the histone modifications and and local and 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 spatial locations, including uh, localization at the nuclear lamina. What wasn't and, and the fact that the inactive X chromosome is enriched near the nuclear lamina is something that was observed decades ago, uh, even just by looking at the Barr body. Uh, in fact, I believe it was actually Barr. Uh, who uh, who first observed the fact that the bar, what is now called the bar body, the inactive X, is enriched on the nuclear periphery. Um, so you know the fact that it's enriched at the nuclear lamina and the nuclear periphery uh, is is an old observation. But what wasn't clear was whether or not this was a consequence of inactivation and silencing and repression, meaning. You, you know, you're 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 silencing this whole chromosome. You're driving heterochromatin formation, and so now, as a secondary outcome of that, you recruit it to this silence compartment, like the nuclear lamina, or if uh, it was directed and important for function. And there are different ways you can imagine that it could be important for function. One would be that by sequestering a chromosome at the nuclear lamina, you would prevent, for example, RNA pol two from being able to engage and transcribe because it, it, Paul II is generally depleted at the nuclear lamina because it's enriched for inactive marks and inactive uh, chromatin. Um, and, and that's been proposed uh, for, for lamina-associated domains generally uh, in the past. The other, uh, and, and, and I should say that uh, when we tested that, um, we actually didn't see that to be the case, meaning recruitment of the X chromosome to the lamin itself doesn't silence transcription. Um, you can still have active transcription at, at the nuclear lamina if you don't have, for example, if you knock out SHARP uh, H or HDAC3 because you no longer silence transcription. Okay? So simply being at the lamin isn't what's driving silencing. But what we realized is that um, it, it's still, it, that, that's not because directed recruitment to the lamin is not important. It's, um, it turns out it's important for a different reason. And the reason it's important is because the directed anchoring to the nuclear lamina in this, in the case of the inactive X, is essential for enabling uh, exist to spread across the X chromosome because it acts to remodel the architecture of the X chromosome. So, for example, when exist localizes to a new site on the chromosome using three-dimensional uh, diffusion and localization, we started talking. We started with um, those sites, it, it does so to sites that are closest to the exist transcription locus. But if the process ended there, then all you would really get is localization of exist at sites that were free, um, that that were close to the in, to the the exist locus, the inactive the inactivation center 
at the very beginning of the process. You would never spread across the chromosome. And so what you need is a process that enables remodeling of the, archite of the architecture of the chromosome to enable other locations on the X to preferentially come into contact, spatial contact, with the exist transcription locus. And the way that that happens is uh, that when exist gets to a new site, not only does it recruit this silencing complex to turn off transcription, but it also recruits this lamin, uh, um, uh, this affinity to the nuclear lamina through an interaction with the lamin B receptor, which is a transmembrane protein in the nuclear lamina. And that acts to sort of pull, if you will, DNA from its current location to the periphery, which then acts to change the topology, not just of the location that's being moved, but of the of the other other regions on the X chromosome. And so now regions that were already silenced are sort of pulled out of commission, so to speak. And, and sites on the X chromosome that have not yet been silenced come closer to the origin, right? The 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 position of the uh, of exist. And so now exist can spread to those new sites, silence transcription, pull it out, right, and continue this. I sort of think of it like a ratchet, right? Imagine you have like a string, you ratchet one part of it, right? It brings the other parts closer. And I think that's that's by analogy what exactly what's happening on the inactive X uh, and nuclear lamina. By by you know when it goes there, it can ratchet those positions out to the periphery and now bring other locations closer to the source until you kind of thread through the entire chromosome. This is probably also part of the secret or of the explanation, because I think that um, you must have relatively little exist RNA compared to the whole chromosome, right? Yes. Uh, yes. In, in fact, um, the that is, I mean, to me, one of the biggest, what was one of the biggest conundrums was how do you actually achieve such a precise and um, robust, even deterministic silencing process where you silence every gene on the chromosome, despite the fact that the abundance is simply not high enough for that to be true stoichiometrically. And, and to make that more concrete, you know, the here are the numbers. So if you look in a single cell, there are about 60 to 200 copies of exist per cell. The X chromosome in mouse, but it's bigger in humans, so I'll just use mouse as an example, is 100, the X chromosome is 167 megabases, 167 million bases of DNA. And exist localizes broadly across the whole chromosome. So it's not like there are specific binding sites, right? And so that means that one exist molecule has to localize to and silence more than a million base pairs of DNA or dozens of protein coding genes. So one RNA, dozens of protein coding genes. And that can't work through stoichiometric localization, right? The it can't be that the RNA is present at all those sites simultaneously because it, it, the numbers... It's just not possible. Right? <laughs> and it's impossible, right? And, 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 um, and, and let's extrapolate that beyond exist for a moment. One of the... I, I've been studying link RNAs now for... 15 years, you know, one of the big, and, and I think fair criticisms often of link RNAs is they're so lowly abundant. How can they even do what, how can they be important? Or how could they even do the things that people report, the functions that people report them to have? 
And I think exist is a perfect example of this, right? It clearly silences a whole chromosome. It's essential for this, um, but the abundance is too low to achieve it. And um, and and so uh, this is a question we've been also really fascinated by. And fairly recently, we uh, we we set out to tackle this. And what we found is that um, the way that this works, once again, by exploiting you know spatial three dimensional spatial proximity in the nucleus. Um, is to achieve this sort of unique modality of regulation where it can achieve non-stoichiometric uh, effects or, or, in a, or another way of putting it, where it can spatially amplify regulation such that the effects are bigger than, uh, than would be expected based on the copy number of the RNA. And the way that this works is the RNA can seed this high concentration on the X chromosome based on three-dimensional diffusion, sequestration, ratcheting. And um, by doing so, can sort of drive high local concentrations of, of sharp, smart HVAC3 into this compartment. So now, and, and does so through high affinity binding, right? So, so it binds, sharp binds with high affinity to, the, to exist itself. And, but then what happens is you've created a concentration difference uh, of protein localization in the nucleus. So on the X chromosome, you have a very high local concentration relative to the rest of the nucleoplasm. And so once you achieve that high local concentration or valency, right, spatial valency of this, of, of this protein complex, these proteins can then undergo concentration-dependent phase separation, meaning that they can start to interact with each other, not through the RN domains or the Spock domain, these structured domains, but rather through their unstructured domains, through the intrinsically disordered regions. And what so what happens then is that the concentration of this repressive complex, of this sharp, smart HSAC3 complex, increases in this local region of the X chromosome to an extent that is much larger than the concentration of that initial seed of the exist RNA, right? Because it no longer is dependent on binding to exist. It's dependent on the ability to bind through the IDRs to other molecules of shark. And it turns out that this is uh, really important for being able to achieve deterministic silencing because without it, right, you can still localize, you can still recruit sharp, but you recruit very little of it, and you only recruit it stoichiometrically. So where exist is, you have it. But to be able to get this across the whole chromosome, you need this amplification. And um, and this is, it turns out, not just a, it, it's a, it's, this low abundance is not a, is not a bug of the system. It's a feature of the system, right? So, because you can imagine, you say, okay, Okay, well, this is cute and all, but like, why don't you just solve it by expressing more of the RNA, right? Uh, and then you would, wouldn't have to come up with these really bizarre uh, uh, mechanisms. You could just stoichiometrically recruit a repressor and, you know, uh, all, all's good. Um, but it turns out that's highly problematic because if you, because remember, I started off by telling you that the way that exists and many other link RNAs, we can talk more about that later, but uh, how it extrapolates. But but the way that exists localizes to the X chromosome is not through affinity, right? It's through proximity. 
So if you were to take exist and you were to put it on an autosome, on chromosome 11, it would localize on chromosome 11 and it will silence transcription on chromosome 11. Now in the lab, that's cute. That's cool, right? In a person, that'd be catastrophic, right? Because you know the whole point of dosage compensation, X and activation is to equalize gene expression. If now all of a sudden you're starting to silence genes on autosomes, that would be catastrophic, developmentally catastrophic. And so uh, it's not just about achieving silencing, it's about achieving specificity. The way I think about it is, you know, you need to silence the, the X, the whole X, and nothing but the X. And and so going and back only to one X. why don't we just sorry? And only one X. And only one X, right? Like one X, the whole X, and nothing but that X. Um, and so going back to the question of why don't we just express the higher levels, turns out because it spreads by facial diffusion, if you express it at higher concentrations, then the radius, the range of diffusion, of spatial diffusion increases. So now if we titrate out the expression, which we can do in a lab, what you start to see is it no longer just localizes on the X chromosome, it starts to localize on autosomes. Yes, autosomes that tend to be closer to the X chromosome, but still to other chromosomes. And so the way that this, the way that you constrain it to being only on the X chromosome is by constraining its abundance, its production level, right? So high abundance, large range, small abundance, shorter range. But then you have the opposite problem, which you have the, the converse problem, which is, you know, when you have low enough abundance that you can achieve specificity, you don't have high enough abundance to silence robustly, right? And that's why you need the spatial amplification mechanism. Um, but those two sort of work hand in hand to enable the robust and specific uh, uh, regulation on the X chromosome. And I would I would argue uh, for many other link RNAs, the low abundance of these RNAs are likely what um, are, are likely a feature that are important for ensuring their specificity to their target sites um, in in a similar kind of way. Right, because once you have this sort of new kind of mechanism for localization, you need a new kind of mechanism for constraining it. Yeah. So since we are now almost halfway through the available time, I want to switch gears a little bit and move away from XIST and more into the 3D structure of eukaryotic genome in the nucleus. Um, there you pioneered in developing a method that would help in exploring the genome-wide mapping of higher-order interactions in the nucleus. You call this method split pool recognition of interactions by tag extension short for or short sprite um, could you walk us through the principle of the method and why you set out to develop such a method sure yeah so uh, i'll start with if uh the method so sprite it is um uh, a split pool based method to map spatial organization and the idea here is that if we can crosslink Uh, DNA, RNA, and protein molecules in C2, similar to the way we would do it, for example, for Hi-C or even for CHIP or any of these other genomic assays, we can uh, fix where different molecules are spatially uh, in the nucleus. And if we can then fragment uh, this up into sort of smaller chunks, and sort of think of it like a picture. Imagine you have a picture and you shattered it with a hammer. You'd have a whole bunch of different fragments And you can use that to sort of reconstruct what the original picture looked like, right? By putting them back together. And so if we can now shatter the nucleus into these individual fragments, what we can then do is we can measure what molecules are present within each uh, fragment. 
and then we can uh, reassemble it into a um, 3D picture of the connectivity of the nucleus. And the way that we do that is that each of these fragments uh, can uh, uh, clusters right of chromatin can contain uh, in, in many cases dozens or hundreds, some cases even thousands of different DNA molecules within them. And and so what we what we need to be able to do is map out not just what pairs of DNA sites are close, but what is the whole connectivity of each of these clusters. And we do that by uh, split pool uh, mapping. And the idea there is we if we take these sort of collection of all uh, chromatin fragments and we dilute it into, for illustration purposes, a 96-fold plate, there are simpler variants of this we developed, but for illustration, I'll just say a 96-fold plate where each well of the plate has a different barcode sequence, then the probability that two molecules that are cross-linked together in a complex will end up in the same well and get the same barcode is one because they're physically linked. The probability that two molecules are not cross-linked together, for example, they're in two different clusters, end up in the same well and get the same barcode is one out of 96, right? Because it's the probability they happen to be in the same well. And we can ligate that barcode from that well onto the ends of each of the, of the DNA molecules in, in that, in that uh, chromatin. Uh, each of the DNA molecules in, that, uh, uh, in, the chromatin in, the, in the cluster. Now, those probabilities may not sound that impressive because, of course, if you have millions of different clusters, right? One out of 96 is still pretty terrible because you'll get lots of collisions, right? Lots of things that will look like they came from the same place, but they really weren't. But what we realized is that we can actually concatamerize these barcodes. And, and so we could concatamerize them to make uh, strings, uh, barcode strings. And so if we then pull everything back together and repeat that process again, now diluting it into a second 96-well plate, the probability that two molecules that are linked right, get the same barcode in round one and round two is still one because they're physically linked. But the probability that two molecules that are not cross-linked together end up in the same well in round one and round two is multiplicative, right? So it's one out of 96 squared. Um, and we can do this any arbitrary number of times, right? Just right, pool, split, pool, split, can catamerize the barcodes. And as you increase the number of rounds, the probabilities of probability of collision decreases exponentially. So at the end of, let's say, five rounds, the probability of collision is about one out of 96, one out of 96 to the fifth, which is approximately one, you know, 10 to the minus 10, approximately, which is now much smaller than the total number of molecules that we have. So the probability of, of getting any collision now becomes very, very low. And so what we can then do is we can just sequence the, 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 the barcode strings and their linked DNA molecules, and then computationally, analytically, just assemble them into sets, right? Find all DNA molecules that have the same barcode strings, and those should have come from the same cross-linked chromatin cluster. And then we can use that to sort of build out these chromatin clusters, and through those chromatin clusters, build out uh, the, th the, the distances, the 3D distances, of each of these DNA molecules inside the nucleus. Um, yeah. Uh, so what is that? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, and what's really nice and powerful about this method is not only is it, a, it allow us to then measure multi-way contacts, but it also then directly generalizes beyond DNA to include, for example, mapping of RNA and in, in DNA. Right. So 
for example, what non-coding RNAs are localized in what structures or what uh, transcription, uh, nascent transcripts are made at what 3D structures. And it also extrapolates to proteins, right? Because once again, as long as you have these molecules crossing together, you can start to map the connectivity of, of these components in space. Yeah, so um, you now have the spaces of the sprite method. Um, maybe we can just talk about the advantage over the classical method that were around at that time. Sure. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, so I, 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 I hesitate to... Um, Uh, to, to I, I know we're, when one is always supposed to say our method is better than. Um, <laughs> okay. So I hesitate to say that only because um, our method is different than, uh, for example, high C or proximal ligation, uh, because it measures something different. So the the current method, I would say the the current methods at the time, the primary the primary methods were based on proximity ligation uh, um, variants of what was originally called three C chromosome confirmation capture that had been extended in various different ways, ultimately, to a sequencing-based assay called HI-C. Um, and the idea behind those methods is that when you cross-link molecules in C2, DNA regions that are close together uh, can form a ligation junction uh, between their ends, and you can map those contacts, those pairwise contacts, uh, based on sequencing the chimeras. And so um, there are a couple of fundamental differences between sprite and proximity ligation methods. The first one is that proximal ligation methods are, by definition, because of the um, pairwise ligation junctions, pairwise. So you can measure how two molecules interact, but not how 100 molecules interact. And um, uh, the you can perhaps extrapolate from two upwards, but of course, there are fundamental differences between thinking about how multiple components simultaneously associate. So for example, if you're thinking about a nuclear body, let's just even say the nucleolus, right? One of these structures that are apparent under the microscope, right? These are not individual pairwise contacts. These are a higher order assembly of DNA, protein, RNA molecules, but even in the context of DNA, of DNA assemblies uh, that are not well captured. In fact, not observable uh, by uh, high C type methods, proximity ligation-based methods. The, the, Other sort of fundamental difference, aside from sort of the higher order aspects, is that by being able to move away from ligation, proximity ligation, uh, we can actually start to measure events that occur at larger distances. And so to think about this, let's use the analogy that I started with around, you know, DNA organized around the nucleolus. So if you imagine the nucleolus as a nuclear body that, you know, has a diameter of, let's say, one micron. And you have multiple DNA sites that are organized on the periphery of the nucleolus. Those DNA sites that are on the two ends of this body would never be close enough to form a ligation junction because they're, they're actually physically far, even though they're spatially organized. Um, but with a method like Sprite, we're not constrained by physical distance between the molecules. We, we can actually measure all molecules that are cross-linked together, which means that we can identify molecules at different and larger distances relative to each other. And in fact, the size of the clusters that we get out, as I said, I said for Sprite, we randomly fragment the nucleus up into different chunks, uh, dictates sort of our ability to, allows us rather, allows us to estimate the distance between molecules. And going back to the picture analogy, the, the reason for that is, If I have a shard in my random, you know, 
I took my hammer, it broke things up. I have these different shards. If I have two pixels that are in a small shard, they're obviously closer together. If two pixels are in a larger shard, they're on average are farther apart. And so in this case, what we're doing is we're, we're measuring many, many, many instances of this. So we can actually estimate the 3D distances between molecules based on what cluster sizes they're represented in. So molecules that are represented in larger clusters tend to be uh, interactions that are at at, lar at farther distances. Molecules that are only observed in very in very small clusters are are uh, contexts that occur at very close distances. And in fact, if you break down the contacts based on cluster size, the we you know the the correlation with high C, for example, is phenomenal when we're looking only at the very small clusters because we're because those are the ones that are very close. But as you start looking at the larger and larger clusters, it that, that correlation starts to break down. You start to see, you know, more and more, I would say, new things, things that we couldn't observe previously with proximal ligation. For example, interactions around the nucleolus, uh, uh, active transcription organizing around nuclear speckles, cahal bodies, right? Uh, even many of these classical nuclear bodies that we know about from microscopy, but have been hard to observe at a genome scale. Oh, you're touching my wound because uh, now I want to go back to my PhD project and uh, <laughs> because I, I was mapping uh, nucleolus-associated domains and <laughs> this would have been uh, a nice method to do so. Um, so now with Sprite, you have a nice base method. It seems like that you can expand to the scope of 3D genome architecture. And the first obvious thing is, is to go into the single-cell space, right? So you also um, adapted it for single-cell experiments. Exactly. Yes, um, and um, and the and and the way that we adapted it was to, you know, there are a couple of different ways you can imagine doing this. Uh, we could use microfluidics. You could use plate-based sorting. All the all the kinds of approaches that have uh, often been used, for example, with single-cell RNA seq, um, quite successfully. But what we we thought about is that in a way we already have the ability to map. We we have the ability to map. Uh, higher-order uh, nucleic acid interactions by Sprite. So really, what the difference is between a spatial cluster, one of these individual clusters after we fragment, and a cell is really just the connectivity. And so what we noticed is that before we ever uh, sonicate, uh, when we cross-link and just lyse our cells, the nuclei are pretty well intact. So all the DNA molecules, protein molecules, RNA molecules, are, are linked together just... Um, in situ uh, uh, prior to sonication uh, fairly well. And so if we could just start by mapping out the connectivity of all the, all of the, D, in this case, DNA molecules in that um, intact, I would say intact, but cross-linked intact uh, nucleus, uh, then we can actually uh, keep track of which DNA fragments came from the same single cell prior to you know, breaking it up and then tracking the individual 3D contacts. And so that's exactly what we did, which is um, we developed the single, what we call single cell sprite, which is uh, really just, I don't want to trivialize it because it was a lot of hard work by uh, folks and uh, really important people in my lab. Um, but but just conceptually, really what it entails is 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 just um, an adaptation of, of, of sprite where we can uh, use two rounds, two, two rounds of split, the first one being at the level of the intact nucleus. And then followed by sonication and a uh, second round of split pool on the individual clusters uh, to map uh, 
3D contacts. And, and what's nice about this is not only to make it you know, simpler, doesn't require specialized equipment, microfluidics, et cetera, but it also scales very nicely in terms of the numbers. So for example, generating thousands, e even millions of single cells is, is pretty trivial uh, because, the, because remember, right, split pool scales exponentially. So if you want to do a million cells, right, you would need uh, on the order of a million unique barcodes, which is in the parlance of the 96 well space is about three rounds of barcoding, right? Um, the math is a little bit different than that, but approximately, okay? And, and so it scales very nice. The, the, of course, the limitation with doing really large numbers of cells then just becomes one of depth, uh, right? If you're going to do millions or tens of millions of cells, of course, you would need very high sequencing depth to be able to get very high resolution per cell. And so, of course, there's always a trade-off between number of cells versus depth. Um, but um, at the same time, it, it allows you to sort of expand and scale in a way that other approaches, uh, which is harder in, 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 with other approaches. And the next thing that you moved into is obviously, because we have talking about this for the first half of the interview, is RNA. So this also expands to nascent RNA or, or pre-mRNAs. Um, and so you could map like RNAs, nascent RNAs. Um, is this just like another way of barcoding? Yeah, so, um, uh, well, <laughs> um, maybe, but, but, but it's a lot more than that, right? Um, because what it enables you to do is, uh, in fact, let me break this down into two parts, right? Um, the ability to tag RNA and DNA simultaneously allows us to, to do two, two different things. One is, is directly measure transcription in, and even splicing on chromatin in different three-dimensional environments. Because what we have in these clusters are spatial information of connectivity of DNA and instantaneous transcription rates and even splicing rates that are occurring at those locations. Um, so for example, uh, you can explore what is the transcriptional landscape of being organized around the nucleolus. Right, so we started off by talking about you know being at the nucleolus. Repressed heterochromatin tends to be enriched at the nucleolus, right? But does that mean that being at the nucleolus is repressive? And 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 that's actually surprisingly hard to answer with traditional methods, ensemble methods, because usually the way that you would you would explore that would be to map out what DNA sites are at the nucleolus using many different possible methods, but um, uh, but it would be sort of a DNA-centric approach to the nucleus. And then separately, you would look at, for example, RNA-seq or transcription, pro-seq, et cetera, to ask, are these genes transcribed? But what you don't know is, are, you know, is that DNA locus at the nucleolus and what, uh, you know, in a given cell? And what is the instant, what is the transcription of it when it's at the nucleolus versus you know, there's heterogeneity. So there's always heterogeneity. So it could be that the DNA locus is, let's say, 50% of the time at the nucleus, 50% of the time not. And on average, it's, you know, low, more lowly expressed. But what you don't know is what is, you know, what is this transcription when it's at the nucleus versus when it's not? And you can't really aggregate it because you don't have that same information in the same cellular context, in the same spatial context. 
And so what integration of RNA into Sprite, what we call RD Sprite, enables us to do is actually observe these two events simultaneously, which means that we can now uh, stratify events based on whether or not they're close to the nucleolus. And if so, what is transcription versus is it far from the nucleus, what's its transcription? The same is true for other types of nuclear structures, nuclear compartments. Um, for example, uh, A and B compartments, uh, sometimes referred to as active and inactive compartments that were first identified uh, in the very, very first high C paper uh, from Yob Decker's lab back in 2009. Um, it has sort of become a shorthand to, to refer to them as active and inactive compartments, but at the same time, we know that there are genes within B compartments, the inactive of the two, that, that are transcribed if you look at RNA-seq, right? And so is it that transcription happens in the B compartment? Or is it that when, when those genes sort of loop out of the B compartment, they can be transcribed? So on average, there's transcription in the B compartment. This wasn't actually known. And the ability to be able to look at these events simultaneously allowed us to actually really tease this apart and build out these structure models, these active and inactive AB compartments, um, and look at their transcription in those structures. And to our surprise, uh, what we found is that even in the B compartment, right, you can have active transcription. Even at the nucleolus, you have active transcription. Uh, and, uh, to, and, and that was, uh, a surprising observation, but also one that was really, uh, difficult to, to address previously. Now, I, you know, I, I, I'll give you one other example of this, this, in this case, less about transcription, more about splicing, right? RNA processing. But, um, one of the, one of the first things that we identified in, with the straight up DNA sprite were these sort of large uh, interchromosomal contacts that organize around nuclear speckles. The nuclear speckles are these uh, bodies that were actually first observed by Cajal, actually, so more than 100 years ago. Uh, we, we've known for probably about 30, maybe 40 years, I think I'm do the math, but, but for a long time that, that, that these bodies are enriched for uh, splicing factors. Um, but we really didn't know... We, still don't really know what these do. And what we observed in our, uh, we, and, and I should say, um, Andy Belmont's lab using a different method called TSAC observed the same thing, um, uh, which is that act highly transcribed gene dense regions tend to organize around these nuclear speckles and, and these interchromosomal hubs. And, um, and that was, uh, you know, that, that sort of opened up this sort of new view for us in thinking about what speckles might, might do. And I'll shortchange a long description other than to say what we've been able to see through many different experiments, but I'll focus on the sprite aspect for a moment, is that um, if you just look at in the same clusters, right, DNA sites that are close to speckles versus their RNA, because we have nascent RNA, we can actually measure splicing efficiency because we can actually observe, right, on chromatin, which is the nascent product, whether or not you have an exon exon junction or an exon intron junction, whether or not it's spliced out or retained, and so we can compute efficiency of splicing at ev you know basically every one of these locations, whether they're close to a speckle or far from a speckle. And what we found is is that 
when you, you know, when you're organized close to a speckle, the efficiency of splicing, meaning how quickly and how effectively you remove your introns to make the mature mRNA is much faster, is much, is much higher. The efficiency is much higher. The kinetics are much faster than when you're farther from a speckle. Um, and those are the kinds of events that you can actually observe uh, by being able to measure uh, uh, DNA structure and nascent transcription uh, and RNA uh, simultaneously. The converse, of course, is also that there are thousands of non-coding RNAs. Um, of course, that's sort of where we came from and where we started with all of this and why we developed this in the first place. And where these RNAs localize dictates how they work and um, what they do in what contexts. And so this also allows us to uh, map in a global way, right, where all these different non-coding RNAs are uh, in space, in, in, in the 3D structure of the nucleus. Yeah, that's a, that sounds very interesting and would open up another whole podcast episode. But in the interest of time and to respect your upcoming meetings, I want to wrap uh, up this episode and ask you one last thing. Um, did we miss something important during the course of this uh, round trip through your career, uh, scientific career? <laughs> um, I, I'm sure I can talk to you for hours and hours and hours about things that I find interesting and important. So, um, so of, I, of course, the answer to that is yes, but nothing that I think we need to necessarily stop and go back to. And maybe I need to come to, to Caltech at one point and then we do a four-hour episode. <laughs> yeah, well, come yeah, come out anytime. I, I'm, the weather is definitely very nice out here and it's, I'm sure there are a lot of people that would be fun you would probably enjoy talking to here as well. Definitely. So thank you, Mitch, for your time and for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.